welcome to Sharp Talk, the regular podcast of eSharp magazine. Go to eSharp.eu for free access to all the podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson. I'm in conversation with Ryan Heath. Ryan Heath is the author of the Daily Politico Playbook, which has about 80,000 subscribers, I think. Ryan will correct me if I get the figures wrong. And, and to many people, certainly in Brussels, the, the, the visible face of a Politico in Brussels. Before that, many people not, will not know that, possibly, that he was a speechwriter in the European Commission, working for people such as the former president, Mr. Barroso, and a spokesman for one of the most senior and visible uh, commissioners in the Barroso Commission. So we're going to talk about communication and media relations and, and your assessment, Ryan, of how well or how badly the European institutions do at communicating. We're getting quite close to next year's European Parliament elections and it's a way for people to focus again every five years about to what extent can the EU raise its game. So question number one, has, has, the, has the Commission in particular, the institutions more broadly, have they raised their game uh, perceptibly in the past few years? I think yes, that would be my broad answer to the question because they're involved in many more platforms now. Like It's very clear, you look at the sort of graphic information the Commission shares. It explains itself in more relatable ways, using more relatable numbers and images and so on. It talks sometimes in more political terms um, than we used to when we were uh, spokespeople um, back in that sort of financial crisis era of the Commission. I think. If I'm very honest as well, it's not necessarily more useful as a journalist because I don't think that forums like the midday briefing of the European Commission, you know, they're more controlled now. You know, you don't really get an answer necessarily um, from those spokespeople. So I think that that can be frustrating as a journalist, but the Commission probably feels better about what it achieves from those platforms. Well, as you know better than I do, there's a well-established narrative out there to the effect that put out by some of the more ardent or the most ardent pro-Europeans if only the EU, if only people understood better what the EU does, that life would be much simpler, there'd be much more support for the European Union broadly. Do you have any sympathy with that argument? I have sympathy for it, but I think it's only one half of the equation. Like the bottom line is for 60 years, the EU was built, if not behind closed doors, certainly out of the, the, the way of prying eyes here in Brussels. So it's not like people across the continent gave their consent every step of the way for every new element of European integration. And so, so to some extent, there's an original sin there. Maybe it was necessary to do it that way. Otherwise, you couldn't have um, sort of attained the achievement. But when you continually do that for decades, somewhere people realize the umbilical cord is being stretched or perhaps broken. And it doesn't matter how nice you make the half of the umbilical cord that you're operating with look, um, maybe you need the umbilical cord. So yes, you could communicate in better ways. Some uh, European citizens don't make a reasonable effort to find out what the EU does for them or why it does it or how it does it or how much it costs them. But um, it's not just about having a nice tweet. You sometimes have to build things with people, not just tell them after the fact. So in the run-up to the nomination of the new commission next year, for example, to what extent is it important for European commissioners themselves to be kind of media savvy, communication savvy? You said earlier that the, the, the current commission has raised, has upped its game, has improved its performance, but increasingly a sort of job requirement before you become a commissioner? I think so. And I think um, I'd probably separate out the immediate next 12-month period and what they've been doing in the last four years. Right. To some extent, the current set of commissioners, they're lame ducks once we get to about September of this year. They'll have certain things that they're finalizing and so on. But 
not that many people want to know about them. They're yesterday's commissioners, most of them, not tomorrow's commissioners. So there's a limit to what they can achieve in that run-up to the European elections. But one of the things that I think the Commission has done really well this time around is commissioners had a greater sense of national attachment. All right. So we were always told in the Commission, you know, they are not the Dutch commissioner, they are not the Irish commissioner, they are the commissioner from Ireland. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, because an accurate but largely meaningless distinction. Because they've signed this oath of allegiance, right, to Europe, yes. not to their so you're not state. here to represent a country, you're here to represent all of Europe. So I, I get that point. But at the end of the day, most people think of themselves uh, in relation to their national identity, to the extent that they engage with politics, they engage with it at a national level. So if you don't try and meet people, at that level, how can you have the conversation with them? It's like social media. Yeah, you can say that it's frivolous and silly, but if hundreds of millions of people are having a conversation there, you kind of you need to go where the conversation is. Yeah. So I think the commission has done a better job of that this time around. And if you want to be a commissioner, I think you need to be prepared to know how to communicate. Maybe not in five languages, we can't all be Franz Timmermans, but <laughs> if you just want to sit in the Berlimont building and work on your files, that's not really the way to make Europe work in the future. And, and the logic of that rationale is, it, is also that commissioners uh, currently now, I think more and more, but certainly in the future, and just putting out the premise, need uh, be, should be allowed, quote unquote, to speak about issues beyond their own portfolio. Back in the days, right? Uh, the bad old days, as it were, the dark days pre-media savviness, the commission commissioners were not really allowed to talk about anything apart from their own job, their own portfolio. So that's, that's going to have to change, surely. It is, but maybe Martin Selmayr needs to answer this question, <laughs> not me. Um, I think that you're allowed to freelance when you are in line with what the 13th floor of the Berlimont wants. Right. And when you aren't in line, then suddenly you find that your leash has been cut um, or pulled back in. I don't know what the metaphor is. But that was always the typical approach. You know, if Nelly Cruz would go out and make some controversial comment about Greece, they would just be standing Nelly, there at the Nelly podium. Being your former boss. Yes, my right. former boss. Um, and then the spokesperson would stand there at the podium and say, oh, well, that was her personal comment. Or they would say that she was misunderstood or something like that. Um, so I, d I don't think all that much has changed there. But if you're Gunter Oettinger, then, yeah, you have a bit of license now to go to the German media, to speak to Bild, and to explain the EU in tabloid terms. Okay. Let's switch a bit to the, the European Parliament. We're getting quite close now to the elections. Okay, it's 14, 15 months away, but people are already gearing up to talk about how to prepare for the camp various campaigns. And without being too esoteric for some of our listeners who don't care about this kind of stuff, the, the Spitzengadendaten process, whereby the groups put forward a, a candidate to sort of head their list and be the kind of the, the the, the representative almost of their, of their political grouping across Europe uh, uh, and then ultimately if they're successful become president of the European Commission but uh, should be this process which was uh, which happened four years ago now should be repeated as a big you know, institutional battle about whether it should happen again next year as it did uh, four years ago but one of the arguments as you know as well about why people are pushing for this process which is some people not exactly a huge success is that it helps to also raise the profile of institutions it's not just more democratic quote unquote it actually helps people to, you know helps the media to have a, maybe another kind of media hook to engage with with the politicians do you buy that argument uh, to a certain extent i mean the spitzen candidate idea i mean it's a bit like communism it's it's good in theory now maybe <laughs> it will work out better than communism who knows but I think it is a little bit of one of those classical Brussels fudges, where it's more democratic rather than merely democratic. Right. So yes, it's something that uh, injects a bit more transparency into the system. It means you can't just be a bunch of national leaders uh, 
deciding everything um, without consultation with sort of a broader public discussion. But I was involved in a referendum in 1999 in Australia about whether Australia should uh, ditch the British constitutional monarchy system that it has and become a republic. And at the end of the day, that referendum failed. And it was chiefly because Australians weren't given the option to elect their own president. Essentially, you were doing this fudge where you just made it you know, a little bit more Australian, um, where you essentially you had an Australian president instead of a British queen, but all achieved by a reasonably similar means. And I think people felt they weren't getting a real choice. And so my questions about the Spitzen candidate process are, is why is this driven institutionally from Brussels? Mm. Like if it was a real problem in the minds of ordinary Europeans, surely there'd be some grassroots campaign for right. it. Um, and I don't see that grassroots campaign. Um, so that makes me question, again, a bit one of those original sin questions about... Well, I'm sure system. the European Federalist groups would be out there fighting for it. Yeah, and I'm not saying there aren't people who would sign a petition and that there aren't really good reasons for it. I'm just saying it's not like something that people talk about in the Ground swell of opinion, right? Yeah, and then um, the, the second point is wh what are the elements of that system? I mean, why not just directly elect a commission president? Mm -hmm. what, what, what is the fear if there is a big demographic... Demo there's a big democratic deficit to close, yeah. then why not close it in one big leap? If you're going to do it with the Spitzen candidate system, I think we need to accept that um, it might take 10 or 15 years for that to get bedded down. Like there's a lot more pushback this time even than there was five years ago. So it does make me a little bit skeptical about it. At the same time, I see the value of it as a journalist. I don't think democracy should work around my needs as a journalist, but I don't think many Europeans imagine the European election in any particular way. What it really is is 28 national elections to a large extent. And I, as an individual and Politico as a, a media outlet, we want to help people see these elections as one collective entity okay. as much as we can. And one element of that is being able to describe the lead candidates, the Spitzen candidate, and to be able to tie the election into what is the future European Commission. So, you know. There's a lot of grey in this idea, um, and I think that anyone who represents uh, the ideas as black or white, I think they're the ones who are misleading you. Maybe for the sake of completeness, we should touch briefly also on the third main institution, the EU institution, the Council of Ministers. I mean, that has traditionally been seen as the, the biggest black hole, the, mo the, the most opaque of all institutions. Mm -hmm. is that, do you see from your vantage point any signs of the, the Council becoming a bit more open in its deliberation, or it'll always, always claim that it has to do all this work basically behind closed doors? It's a little bit more open, but that's just the reality of the digital revolution. So mm -hmm. I'll get a text message now telling me that a boring press release is coming, but it doesn't necessarily right. change the dynamic of the discussion. I think uh, people who work at the council try to be as helpful as possible. I don't think, I, I certainly don't want any individual listening to this to think, oh, I think they're bad at their job no. or something like that. No. But I think the reality is the national governments guard their powers very closely. That affects how the civil servants in Brussels who support them do their job. And they are definitely the least transparent of all of the institutions. And maybe that's their job. I'm not even yeah. making a value judgment of it, but I don't see it changing in any particular way. Um, and there's not really any impact from Brexit, for example. Like, it's much more entrenched than just one country's behavior. 
Okay, well, I'm going to try and make this one of my few podcasts, which is not talk about Brexit. No Brexit. We'll we see. refuse to talk about Brexit. We'll see if we get away with that. So <laughs> let's, you mentioned your employer, Politico. Let's finish yes. off this podcast by talking about Politico. Politico came to town, what, three years ago now? Indeed. Or? Exactly. And uh, great fanfare, obviously. And, you know, and let's, be, let's be candid. A lot of uh, existing mainstream media players in Brussels, both of the big boys, uh, we, know, we, we all know who they are, um, and the sort of local newsletter people who have been around for decades were obviously rather concerned by your arrival for pretty obvious maybe commercial and journalistic reasons. Um, it's maybe it's a difficult question for you to ask to answer impartially because you're maybe slightly biased given <laughs> who's paying your, your your wages every week or month. But what what impact do you think that uh, Politico has had on the Brussels kind of media scene, and what things have you that you're you're be between you collectively, maybe you personally are quite proud of, of changing, and then by extension, what things sort of refuse to be to be to be changed in the Brussels scene because they're so because they're so entrenched. So start with the positive side. Mm -hmm. What has what has Politico brought to the Brussels media scene? I think it's brought a different energy, and I, I maybe have to clarify that into sort of several layers. I think that um, our job, as we saw it, was to make Brussels sexy, to help uh, this town and the set of institutions reimagine themselves. So it's not our job to say that it's good or it's bad, but uh, it is our job to say that it matters and to give uh, a forum for all of those uh, aspirations and frustrations to, to come out in a way that they can't really if you're just an individual correspondent for a newspaper and your editor tells you yeah. that the crisis is the story this week and you've just got to write about the crisis. That gives you a very one-dimensional view of what the EU institutions are. And not just the EU institutions, but how they relate back to national capitals. So I think that because we have 70 journalists based in Brussels now, you know, it's much bigger than any Ish. other yeah. EU-focused outlet. And so we can have 70 dimensions. We don't have to have one dimensions or two dimensions or three dimensions. So that's a really good thing. By the same token, uh, the number of journalists we have is still less than the number of communicators even the commission alone has. It's still less than a significant national newspaper has. You know, you might have only one or two Brussels correspondents, but, but even back home, yeah. all the Belgian newspapers down the road have two, three, four times as many people as we have. So it's in a sort of a strange sort of middle zone of a lot of different things. Uh, I think quite a few people feared that we were somehow going to Americanize, and they saw that as a bad thing, the media landscape. And I, I mean, when I hear people make those sort of criticisms, I think they mostly somehow equate that with a little bit of tabloid culture or a little bit of dumbing down of things. And I hope we haven't done that. I mean, I certainly try and keep things clear and simple, but I don't think that's the same as being dumb. You know, like, yes, I refer to the European Council, and I mean everything that happens in the Justice Lipsius building. Of course, some of them are the Council of the European Union. Only yeah. the summit is the European Council. But these are basically meaningless distinctions yeah. to most people. Yeah. And it annoys people in the Brussels bubble that we don't bow down to some of what we consider the meaningless distinctions. But at the end of the day, I don't think that affects the substance of are we covering you know, how power really works in this town. And I think that we've done a really good job at putting a face to some of that power. Because mm -hmm. what's the biggest criticism everyone has of the EU? That it's about processes, that yeah. it's about some faceless bureaucracy. Face yeah. And you've got to tackle the fundamentals of that if you want anyone else to have a, a serious discussion about it. And yes, it means sometimes you uh, are giving a voice to what most people might consider to be un 
pleasant characters or voices. Mm. But if you if you don't confront some of that stuff, um, you don't come up with the answer to it. You don't have a real debate. You just are running away until something like Brexit blows up in your face. Well, obviously, you try to make you not just you, but your, or your seventy odd colleagues are try to yeah put a face on things and you know to use a slightly inappropriate word to make the place a bit more sexy. Uh, but do 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 you accept that even you that up to a point it's you know it's the, the EU is not made to be sexy. It, the way it's done, the way it's structured, you know you can only do so much with what you're what you're given, as it were. I'm not I'm not trying to be defeatist or fatalist, but you find sometimes, my God, this is this is impervious to any attempt by me to make the place sexy. Uh, yeah, I do find that sometimes. I've got I've got a few more gray hairs and a few more dark rings around my eyes than I imagined three years ago. When you sit there wrestling at two o'clock in the morning with like, oh my god, how do I bring this to life? Um, but I think one thing I would say is people imagined our version of sexy was going to be sort of like sort of silly, titillating, yeah, titillating sex yeah, scandals yeah. and stuff like that. And I don't think we've ever no. really touched on that aside from a power couples article. But I mean, you know. A power couple's article is a really legitimate article. Like, why shouldn't we know that this couple is married and they have these two power positions? Right. Like, that, that does potentially impact the way that people um, approach their job, their life, or how they're viewed by others. And we should be able to have a serious discussion about that. Okay, we have to leave it there, Ryan. Thank you very much for your time. It was a pleasure.